here this morning with young kids. I'm extra impressed this morning that you made it through springing ahead and still got here on time and you're here and it's extra impressive. The rest of you, I'm impressed by you too, but it's a little bit easier without the young ones. So I'm, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. We can come together and, and worship together as a God people in this place. If you are new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church and we're we're glad that you're here with us. If you are new or visiting and there's anything you want to let us know about yourself, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. You can fill that out and you can drop it in the, the offering boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where uh, you can place uh, tithes and offerings if you want to contribute to what we're doing here as a church. We're just glad that you're here with us as we enter into a time of worship this morning, would you prepare your heart and your mind with me by entering a time of prayer? Father, we, we thank you for this, this time to gather, to, to be together as your people, to worship you as the God who... the giver of all good gifts, the God who, who loves us, the God who, who cares for us, the God who blesses us in ways that we so often take for granted. We thank you for this chance to, to be together, to worship you, to set aside time in our weeks to fix our minds and our hearts on what you would have to say to us through your word and also in glorifying you as we sing praise to you. I pray that you would be honored and glorified by all that take place here this morning. Father, for those in our church family who are, who are hurting or who are struggling, I pray that you would be with them, that you would give them a deep abiding sense of your presence walking along with them through their challenges and a deep abiding sense of your goodness even in the midst of those challenges. Father, we pray that as each of us face various trials and struggles in our life, 
You will give us eyes to see your goodness in the midst of those trials and those difficulties. And as we, as we worship now, pray that we will be able to rejoice even in the midst of sorrows, that we will be able to praise you even in the midst of hardship. Thank you for your goodness to us, your love for us, your care for us. Pray now that our worship of you would be from our heart and for your glory. Pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thing. Congratulations, you made it here on Daylight Savings and a Snowstorm, so bonus points to everybody. Um, is anybody excited about snow yet? Anybody? Oh, we got a couple. Got a couple. Came late. All right, we're going to ask you to stand this morning. We're going to sing a little bit this morning. We still got people coming in, which is awesome. Um, join us in worship. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken I'm accepted you were condemned and I'm alive and well your spirit is within me because you died and rose again I'm forgiven because you were forsaken You, my king, would die for. 
Psalm 100, I shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is good. It is he who made us and we who are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise him. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. There in the ground 
shown us and sending Jesus to die in our place for our sins. Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. Pray it's on Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before we jump into our sermon this morning, just a couple announcements to make you aware of. One is that at the end of the sermon today, we'll take communion together. And on communion Sundays, we do a couple of things that are um, not typical for us week in and week out at the church. One is that on your way out this morning, there will be someone at the door holding a, an offering plate. That plate is specifically for our benevolence offering. Right? So offering that goes to meet needs in our community, tangible, physical needs that people may have. So there'll be someone at the door holding an offering plate. A gift to the Benevolent Fund can go in that plate. Regular Tithesman offering can go in the, the wood boxes on the back wall. Also on Communion Sundays, one of our kind of Sunday school hour options is a, a dedicated time of prayer. And so Bill Miller is going to lead a, a time of prayer over in the library wing. Um, so there'll be just a time of focused prayer for needs in our community, in our congregation. Um, and just He'll lead that time of prayer. So we'd invite you to, to join that. It's just a time of focused prayer for, for needs and in praise of, of God. Also during the Sunday school hour, there'll be children's Sunday school in the classrooms downstairs. And in, in this room, we'll be having our discussion of the book Essential Christianity by J.D. Greer. Even if you haven't read the book or don't know what we're talking about, I think you're welcome to join us. It'll be a good conversation about what God has done for us and what the gospel is all about. So we invite you to, to be a part of that. With that in mind, let's go ahead and kind of get into our, our sermon this morning. 
So in the 1988 presidential campaign, George H.W. Bush was going up against Michael Dukakis. And, and one, of Bush, one of the Bush campaign's kind of most effective tactics during that whole campaign was to paint Dukakis as, as weak on national defense. And so in order to try and combat that image as being weak on national defense, Dukakis, or someone in his campaign, decided it, was a, it would be a good idea for him to ride into one of his campaign events on a tank. They wanted to show him looking strong and in a military posture. To say that plan backfired would be an understatement. Like instead of looking tough, he just looked goofy. Right? Instead of looking like he belonged, he just looked out of place. Like his helmet was oversized. He looked nothing like someone you would expect right, who actually knows what they're doing on a tank. He just looked out of place. It just reinforced that image. Until so the Bush campaign seized on this moment. Right? And they actually ran an ad featuring the video that Dukakis made showing him on a tank. Right? They turned it against him. They said to show that Dukakis wasn't really serious about national defense. So Bush obviously went on to win the, the 1988 election quite comfortably. Right? And that moment had gone down in history as like a, a, an example of what not to do to win an election. Right? It's gone down in political science textbooks as what not to do with a politician. Right? A couple of years before that, the man that Bush and Dukakis were fighting to replace, Ronald Reagan, right, he was preparing to give a, a radio address from his residence in California. And as he was warming up and he was doing a sound check with the people in the room, he, he joked around by saying to them, My fellow Americans, I am pleased to tell you today I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. He's joking around with people in his room, but unbeknownst to Reagan, some of the radio stations that he was going to be broadcasting on had already begun recording his talk. They weren't broadcasting it, but they had recorded it. And it didn't take long for that soundbite to leak out. And of course, this is in the midst of the Cold War, and, and many people kind of decried Reagan's joke as foolish and out of touch. Not least of all, the Soviets. The Soviet state news agency commented, the USSR condemns this unprecedented and hostile attack by the U.S. president. This kind of behavior is incompatible with the great responsibility borne by heads of nuclear states for the destinies of their own people and mankind. And there were initially fears that, that this joke and this gaffe would escalate tension to the point that the Cold War would become not so cold. Right? Of course, thankfully, this statement kind of eventually blew over. It didn't end up starting World War III. Right? And in the year to follow, Reagan actually would make significant strides in de-escalating tensions between the United States and the USSR. But no one really disputes that, that those remarks were not a great look politically. And so I share those two, two stories, two political gaffes, because they're similar to two gaffes that Pontius Pilate had made as he's the governor of, of Palestine. He made these gaffes in the years leading up and before the moment when, when a Jewish rabbi named Jesus would be brought before him and the Jewish leaders would, 
would ask him to condemn Jesus to death. So just as a reminder, Israel at this time in history is it's under the rule, under the control of the Roman Empire. And, and Rome kind of divided up their empire into different territories, different regions, and they put governors in charge of each region. And Pilate's the governor of this region they call Palestine. It's a, a region that includes most of Israel. And Pilate had been governor for some time before the story will come to in our passage today. In the years preceding today's passage, Pilate had made a couple of key mistakes as governor. One of those was the result of him, kind of like Dukakis, trying to do something that would increase his popularity, only to have it backfire horribly. So he decided he was going to build this 23-mile-long aqueduct that would bring water into Jerusalem. And as far as we can tell, he did this with good intentions. He wanted it to be for the good of the residents of Jerusalem. But he made a key mistake, which is that he funded the project by taking money from the temple treasury in Jerusalem. <clears throat> for the Jewish people, like that money was to be used for the work of God, not for public works projects. And so they did not take kindly to that act by Pilate, and the people protested. And as they faced that protest, Pilate sent troops to try to contain the protesters and maintain order. But the troops he sent ultimately ended up exceeding Pilate's orders and ended up killing many Jews. Like He sent them as a peacekeeping force, but they ended up killing many Jews and it raised tension between the Jewish people and Rome all the more. The other mistake that Pilate made was was very much like Reagan's, in that one of Pilate's main jobs as governor of Palestine was to prevent war. Right? Like he was to prevent the local population from trying to rise up and rebel against Roman authority. Right? In the same way that one of Reagan's chief jobs during the Cold War was to prevent World War III, one of Pilate's main jobs was to prevent a Jewish revolution. And yet at one point, he he ordered that military standard bearing the bust of Caesar be brought into Jerusalem. And this caused the Jewish people to be outraged because it violated their laws against banning images. Right? There's an image of Caesar being brought into Jerusalem, which is in violation of Jewish law. So again, the people protested, and the people actually marched 70 miles to Pilate's residence in Caesarea, and they staged a five-day peaceful protest outside of Pilate's home. And Pilate initially ordered that the protesters be, he, be killed. But according to one ancient historian, the protesters then bared their throats, welcoming death rather than the transgression of their law. This, this willingness to die kind of caused Pilate to, to back down, right? to remove the standard and to prevent an outbreak of war. And I share those two mistakes that Pilate made to help us understand as we, as we come to today's passage, right, we read the event in this time, like Pilate's job is not secure. Right? But the governors in this Roman system, they serve at the pleasure of Caesar back in Rome. Right? And Pilate, because of these two mistakes, already has two strikes against him. 
And if he makes another mistake, if he incites any kind of rebellion within Israel, his job and possibly even his life are very much on the line. So we need to keep that knowledge of Pilate's kind of precarious situation in mind as we try to make sense of the way he acts in today's passage. As we read our passage this morning, which is in Luke 23, starting in verse 13, we have kind of one primary question I want us to consider. And that question is this. Who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? You may read that question. You may hear that question. You may think, like, I, I know the answer. It's Pilate. We've kind of been painted him as, as the bad guy. But I want to think, suggest this morning that this passage actually gives us not just one, but three clear options for who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. I want to take some time to look at each one of those options with you. With that in mind, let's look at what God's Word has said to us, starting in Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 13 through 25. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 13, we read this. Pilate called together the chief priest, the rulers, and the people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. You might just read those first, and if you stop right there, you might be really confused. Because Pilate is the one who has the ultimate authority to condemn Jesus to death. And we all know, probably, that Jesus did end up condemned to death. He did end up dying on a cross. And only Pilate can order that. And here Pilate is saying, like, he has done nothing to deserve death. So how do we get from he has done nothing to deserve death to the crucifixion? That's the question that the rest of this story answers. Pilate goes on to say, therefore I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no ground for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shout prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The passage ends with Pilate surrendering Jesus to the will of the people. And of course, that will of the people was that Jesus would be crucified. We said a minute ago, right, the question that hangs over this passage is, who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? And I think there's three options. But let's start with the obvious one, which is Pilate himself. So Pilate's the one, as I said, who has the ultimate authority in this situation. 
He is the one who ultimately hands, holds Jesus' life in his hands. He's the one who has the ultimate authority to either condemn or release Jesus. So he has that ultimate authority. But he's also the one who is least eager in this story to crucify Jesus. In fact, he decidedly does not want to crucify Jesus. Three separate times he tries to release Jesus. He's willing to capitulate a little bit by punishing Jesus and having him flogged first. But he doesn't really want anything to do with killing Jesus. So how and why then does he end up giving in and and condemning Jesus to death? And the answer, in part, goes back to the previous mistakes he's made as governor. Go back to the pressure he's under to keep peace in Israel. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 19, as John tells about these same events, John tells us this. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leader kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. The Jewish leaders know how to hit Pilate where it hurts. They know how to put pressure on Pilate in a way that he is most susceptible to giving into. They know that Pilate's great fear is that he will fail in Caesar's eyes. And then it will be him whose life is in somebody else's hands. If Pilate doesn't condemn Jesus to death, and then the Jewish leaders whip up the crowd into a rebellion, and then word gets back to Caesar that the Jews rebelled because Pilate failed to condemn a man who was being accused of leading an insurrection, Caesar's not going to be pleased. And then, if that happens, the best case scenario for Pilate, that he'll be removed from his position, He'll be removed from his status and all the comfort and the, the fancy seaside palace and all the societal standing that goes along with his position. He'll be fired. He'll be removed. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that Caesar could have Pilate killed as a traitor himself for aiding an insurrection. So Pilate is in a tough spot. And every time I read this, like, I know that Pilate... It's supposed to be one of the bad guys in this story. But I find myself empathizing with him. He's in a tough spot. He has a choice to make. He has to choose. Like, are his convictions about Jesus and who he is, are they worth risking his comfortable lifestyle for? Is his conviction about Jesus worth risking his very own life for? And for Pilate, the answer he comes to ultimately is no. Even if he's convinced that Jesus is innocent, he would rather condemn this innocent man to die and keep his career and keep his own life rather than stand up for his convictions. Pilate tragically chooses his own well-being over Jesus' well-being. And this passage then invites us to ask some of the same questions of ourselves. Are my convictions, what I believe about Jesus, are they worth giving up my comfortable lifestyle for? Are my convictions about Jesus worth risking my own life for? 
Am I willing to endure persecution and trials in order to stand up for what I believe about Jesus? Or if the pressure gets too high, will I simply give up what I claim to believe? Are we going to respond to pressure like Pilate, or are we going to stand up for our convictions? The next group that we see bared responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus is the religious leaders. Now, if you look back at just this passage by itself, you might be inclined to ask, like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't see the religious leaders doing anything in this passage. But of course, we have to remember the rest of the book of Luke. Throughout the book of Luke, it is the religious leaders who are constantly antagonizing and being antagonized by Jesus. It is the religious leaders who are the ones who plot and eventually arrest Jesus. It is the religious leaders who first bring Jesus before Pilate. And it's the religious leaders who most constantly throughout the gospel want Jesus killed. So they scheme to make it happen. It is interesting in this passage that we see the crowds of people urging Pilate to crucify him. When a couple days earlier, the religious leaders had to conspire to arrest Jesus that night outside of the city because they were afraid of what the people would do if they arrested Jesus in public because the people, the crowds, liked Jesus. And now all of a sudden, the people are calling for Jesus to be crucified. So again, we're forced to ask, like, how do we get from the people regarding Jesus so highly to calling for him to be crucified? How did their opinion change so quickly? And in Mark's gospel, as he relates these events, we see the answer. In Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 9, we read this. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Here's the key verse, verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. It's the chief priest, it's the religious leaders who are at work to change the crowd's opinion. They're the ones who most want Jesus crucified, and so they work to change public opinion. What we've seen over and over again throughout the book of Luke is that the reason they want Jesus crucified, the reason the religious leader didn't like Jesus, is because he threatened their status as the ultimate religious authority in the land. He threatened their status as the people who, like, the people needed for their communion with God. They had status and power and influence because they were the means that people used to commune with God. But now Jesus shows up, claiming not just to be another rabbi on their level, but claiming to be the Son of God who has more authority before God than they do. So Jesus chastises these religious leaders and he invites people to come to him instead. We said it a couple weeks ago, but it's I think worth saying again that the religious leaders, they could have abided a Jesus who came to be a good moral example. They could have accepted a Jesus who was a gifted teacher but taught in line with what they taught. But they could not abide a Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God and therefore claimed to have authority over them 
and who threatened their neat and tidy religious system that they had created. <clears throat> so again, <clears throat> this path... <clears throat> This passage invites us to to look at ourselves and question whether there is something of ourselves reflected in these religious leaders. Are are we willing to accept certain parts of Jesus, but not others? Are we willing to accept Jesus as someone with good ideas about spreading love but then reject his claim to be the Son of God with authority over our life? Are we willing to accept the part of Jesus that fit into our neat and tidy religious system, but then reject him when he threatens our status? Are we willing to accept the Jesus who says that that God loves you, but then reject the Jesus that says, love your enemies? It's that kind of partial acceptance of Jesus that led the religious leader to to scheme to have Jesus killed on the cross. So they, along with Pilate, they're the second group that is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. The third group who's responsible is the crowds. This is the group that is, in this passage, most vocally demanded that Jesus be crucified. Three times Pilate tries to release Jesus, and each time the crowd demand that he crucify Jesus instead. In verse 17, Pilate said, I will punish him and release him. But then we read, But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! And in verse 20, Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And in verse 22, A third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no ground for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. Over and over again, the crowds here demand vocally that Jesus be crucified. And again, as we said a minute ago, it's striking how quickly the crowds have turned against Jesus. In Luke 19, right, we, we saw the story of the triumphal entry, where the crowds line the streets and they wave palm branches, joyfully welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. In, verse 21, or in, chapter, in Luke chapter 21, we're told that Jesus would show up at the temple each morning to teach, and we're told, quote, all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. They all came out to hear him teach. They wanted to hear him. And then in Luke 22, the religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus, but they're, they're struggling to figure out how because, quote, they were afraid of the people. The people loved Jesus, and so they couldn't just arrest him and get away with him. People turned so quickly. Earlier in this very same week, Jesus was popular with the crowds. And now here they are calling for his crucifixion. We've already talked about how the religious leaders worked kind of behind the scenes to turn the crowds against Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, if the crowd's love of Jesus had been genuine, it wouldn't have been so fickle. The crowds ultimately didn't love Jesus. 
They were just fair-weather fans of Jesus. My brother, Troy, like me, the big Wisconsin sports fan, and we grew up having all the same kind of favorite teams. Right? We, all, we both loved the Packers and the Brewers and the Badgers and the Bucks. But when it comes to our, our second favorite team in each sport, like we're wildly different. When we were growing up, Troy liked, as the second favorite team, the Dallas Cowboys in football, and Duke in college basketball, and Manchester United in soccer, and the Cleveland Cavaliers in professional basketball. You might hear that list, like, that's a weird mix. Like, why those teams? And the short answer is, he has terrible taste. The slightly longer answer is that those were the teams that were good as he was becoming a fan of each of those sports. He was just a fair-weather fan. He liked those teams because they were good and popular. But when LeBron James left the Cleveland Cavaliers and they became terrible, like suddenly Troy didn't care about the Cleveland Cavaliers anymore. And instead he became a fan of LeBron's new team, the Miami Heat. He's a fair-weather fan. That's the way that the crowd is with Jesus. When it's popular to like Jesus, they like Jesus. When it's popular to dislike Jesus, they call for a crucifixion. They care far more about being a part of something, being a part of anything, than actually being on the right side of the issue. And we're all kind of prone to this desire. Social scientists call this the herd or mob mentality. There's a study done a while back where, where volunteers were told to just randomly walk through the halls of this large building without talking to one another. But a select few of the people in the study were given more specific, detailed instructions about where to walk. And the, the scientists who were doing the study discovered that the people who, that people ended up blindly following the one or two people who have been given detailed instructions, who looked like they knew where they were going. The researcher concluded that it only takes 5% of confident-looking and instructed people to influence the direction of the other 95% of the people in the crowd. And the crowds in, in this passage in Luke have, have given in to this mentality. They're willing to blindly follow the influence of the religious leaders all for the sake of being a part of something. And again, Luke invites us to, to look at the behavior of the crowds and to examine our own hearts, examine ourselves, and ask the question, do I wholeheartedly love Jesus? Or am I just a fair-weather fan of Jesus? Am I one to follow Jesus wherever he calls me? Or will I only stick with Jesus as long as it's easy and popular? The crowds with their fickle, fair-weather, half-hearted commitment to Jesus are part of the, in part responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. So if we, we zoom out and we look at, we have these three options of, of people who could be responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. What we see is that, that because of that, there's, there's no one person who is solely responsible. And it's that everyone in the passage is, 
in some way responsible. What we see is that there's this compounding and cumulative effect of sin that leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate's sin of, of self-centeredness and lack of conviction, plus the religious leader's sin of jealousy and pride, plus the, the crowd's sin of fickle half-heartedness, all of them work together to put Jesus on the cross. And what Luke is doing in all of this, right, by showing us the guilt of everyone involved, it's helping us see that we all are responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. It is the sins of you and me and each and every one of us that is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Stuart Townsend in his song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, he sums it up when he writes, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And Peter, the apostle who denied Jesus, would go on to write his letter of 1 Peter, and he would write this. He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was crucified in order to bear our sins in his body so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. It is our sins that sent Jesus to the cross. We are all responsible. That sounds bad, something bad news, and indeed it is. But we need to feel the weight of it. We need to feel that our sin is no small, minor offense to God. We need to see that it is our sin that are such a big deal to God that they are responsible for the death of Jesus. But thankfully, that's not where this story ends. It's not where even this passage in Luke ends. Because Luke and the other gospel writers all tell us that not only was Jesus condemned to be crucified, but that when Pilate tried to release him, the crowd demanded that Pilate release instead this man named Barabbas. Barabbas was a man who had been convicted of insurrection and murder. So basically, he had already been found guilty of insurrection, which is the same thing that Jesus is being falsely accused of. And on top of that, he's a murderer. But the people still refer, prefer him to Jesus. But they call for Barabbas' release, and Jesus then dies in Barabbas' place. Jesus dies when Barabbas should have died. And that, strange as that may sound, is where the good news of this passage sneaks in. Because not only are we all responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, but we are all Barabbas as well. We are all insurrectionists and murderers. Sin is nothing if not holy insurrection. Right? Sin is an attempt by us to remove God as king 
and to place ourselves on the throne of our own lives instead. It's our way of saying, I know better than you, God. I'd make a better king of my own life than you do, so I'm going to kick you off the throne and reign in your place. It is holy insurrection. We're all insurrectionists like Barabbas. Likewise, we all, like Barabbas, are murderers. The Apostle John tells us that anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Jesus himself taught that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is liable to the same judgment as a murderer. So unless you've never been angry with or felt hatred toward a brother or sister, you are a murderer like Barabbas. We are all like Barabbas, insurrectionists and murderers. But the amazing thing is that like Barabbas, Jesus dies in our place. Jesus dies the death that we were justly condemned to die. He swaps our life for his. No one, when they were calling for the release of, for the release of Barabbas, was claiming that Barabbas was innocent. They just wanted Jesus, the innocent one, to die in his place instead. Jesus swaps our life for his, our guilty, condemned life for his innocent, perfect life. And just as Barabbas was spared from death by Jesus, so we are spared from eternal death by Jesus dying in our place. That's what we remember in communion. When we take the bread, we remember that Jesus' body was broken because he bore our sins in his body on the cross. When we partake of the juice, we remember that the blood of Jesus was spilled to pay the penalty for our sins. In communion, we remember that our sins were so offensive to God that they deserve nothing short of death. But in communion, we also remember that God loved us enough to send His own Son to die that death in our place. We're going to take communion together this morning to remind ourselves and to remind each other of that truth. In just a minute, I'll invite you to, to come forward and grab a piece of bread and a, piece, and a cup of juice from the trays. If you need gluten-free juice, there is gluten-free elements in the wicker basket behind the other elements. If you have a hard time standing and getting up to come up, I will bring the elements to you. Just raise your hand and I will bring the elements to you. Just a minute, we'll let you come. You'll grab the juice, grab the cup, and return to your seat. And when everyone has grabbed the elements, we will partake together. <clears throat> but before we do that, let's, let's pray. Father, we confess that like Barabbas, we are guilty sinners who deserve death. We 
and yet you sent Jesus to come to earth to live the sinless life we should have lived and then to die in our place. Father, we are amazed by that gift of grace. That not because of anything we did to deserve it, you sent Jesus. That by believing in him, we could have eternal life. Father, we also confess that we are forgetful people. We can so easily take what Jesus has done for us for granted. We can so easily fall back into believing we need to do something to earn your favor. So, Father, as we take communion together this morning, with the taking of the bread and the taking of the juice, would it serve as a tangible reminder of the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus? Would it remind us how costly our sin is but it remind us how without hope we are apart from Jesus but it remind us how much you love us that you would send Jesus to die for our sins in our place Father if there's anyone here who hasn't believed that Jesus did die in their place, who doesn't believe that Jesus is the only way that their sins can be forgiven and paid for. Would you work in their hearts now to convict them of the truth of all that Jesus did for them? You help us to Appreciate in a new and deeper way this morning all that you've done for us in Jesus as we remember his death through taking this meal. Father, we thank you for your grace, your love for us. Grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to come, grab the juice, grab the bread, return to your seat, and we'll partake together when everyone has the elements. If you need elements brought to you, raise your hand and I will bring them to you.
Father, we thank you for this bread that reminds us that you swapped your life for ours. You died in our place. You let your body be broken for us. We thank you for this cup that reminds us that you loved us so deeply that you came to us knowing your blood would be spilled Your blood was the only perfect sacrifice that could pay the penalty for our sins. Even though we didn't deserve it, you came and you allowed your blood to be spilled for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me let's partake father would we Always remember, not take for granted the work that Jesus has done for us. Thank you for Jesus and his giving his own life for ours, in our place. Do the same. Amen. Would you go from here? Would you go remembering all that Jesus did, all that he suffered in your place? Would you go seeking to honor and glorify him and live the life that he calls you to live in response to all that he's already done for you? You are just Thank you.